take one of these Bibles, and I'll give you time to open up to page 502. 502. I read Psalm 95 to you a moment ago, but here's another one that could very easily be a memory verse. Um, along, by the way, with Romans 15 verse uh, 12, which will conclude our time together, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him. That's a beautiful verse as well. But Psalm 130, let me read this to you. It's a psalm of hope in despair. A song of a sense. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept the record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. In his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And our second reading is right there, page, that's not right, 1 Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 1. And the page number is 980. 980. Thank you. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with greatest, the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when they predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they, would, that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that are now being told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, 
even angels, look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Thank you, Justin, for your overly generous and I think unhelpful introduction. Expectations now too high. <laughs> um, my name's Rob Forsyth. My natural habitat is this building in the morning, but it's great to see it being used in the evening. <laughs> great to be here. The, there is an outline in the, inside the handout, and you'll notice there a number of Bible references. I'm not going to give these in the sermon, nor am I expecting you to look them up as we go. That's just if you want to go back to something and, and reflect upon it again. And as with Justin and my sermons, if ever you want to get a copy of any of our sermons, written for, we write them out, don't hesitate to email us, because you may think, this is, this is very good, you may think, oh, there's a problem here. Either way, uh, we'll give you our texts, okay? Well, as Justin just said, hope is our theme uh, for this year, and I've been given the honour of opening the batting. Transforming hope, in fact, is a phrase we've used, and that's going to come out what, what that means as the year progresses. Well, let's start by asking about hope in general, what it is. Now, it's something we do all the time, and so therefore you know what it is, really. You just need to reflect upon what you do when you're hoping. We hope that they will, we hope the weather will be fine the weekend. We hope that 2023 will be a better year than 2022. We hope the bus will come on time. We hope the pavlova we're preparing will turn out okay. We may even hope that the Wallabies might win the World Cup. And so on. I call these common and garden variety hopes. They're also often larger hopes we may have for our whole life, like to, to become a concert pianist. We may hope to succeed in business. We may hope to have a long and happy marriage. It's what our delight for Tiffany and Alex. We've hoped that for them. These are more whole-of-life hopes. Either way, I think we know what to hope. If you analyse it, hope has got two parts, really. An expectation, which is not unreasonable, of something that's desirable. An expectation that is not unreasonable for something that's desirable. When I say not unreasonable expectation, I mean an expectation that's got some credibility no matter how remote it might be. It might be very unlikely, but there's some reason why it's just possible. You can't say you're hoping for something if you believe it's impossible. I, I may hope to win the lotto, even though it's extremely unlikely my ticket will get up, but I can't hope to win the lotto if I have no ticket in it. Please gamble responsibly. That's the difference between hope and optimism. Optimism is only a quirk of the temperament, a tendency to always look upon the bright side of life, not for any reason. But the author Gary Eagleton distinguished optimism from hope in his 2015 book, interestingly entitled Hope Without Optimism, when he writes, and I quote, authentic hope needs to be underpinned by reasons. It must be able to pick up the features of a situation that render it credible. 
Otherwise, it's just a gut feeling, like being convinced there's an octopus under your bed. Hope must be fallible, as temporal cheerfulness is not. Although, can I say, in passing, it is a very annoying fact that those with temperamental cheerfulness do in fact live longer and healthier lives, and optimism is a dominant personality trait among the exceptionally rich. I find that a very annoying fact. And I'm sure you would too if you, like me, were a bit of a pessimist, or as we call them, a realist. Wait, rant over. The second aspect of hope is that it's an expectation for something that's desirable. You don't say you hope for something that is undesirable. You don't say, oh, I hope I, don't, hope I get booked on speeding. No, no, you say, I hope I don't get booked while I'm speeding. Or you might say, I hope that guy that just cut in gets booked by the police around the corner. That's because it's desirable for you, a bit of schadenfreude, to see this guy pulled over and have the seat of shame as the cop sits behind him with a light going on, right? This means that you, all hope is for something you desire, but not all hope is commendable. Okay? It's the not unreasonable expectation of something that's desirable. Very simple. Let's turn to the New Testament. There we find examples of common and garden variety hopes. For example, Paul, writing of his plans to visit Corinth again and desire to stay with them for some time, writes, I quote, For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, as the Lord permits. That's, that's a, turned out that didn't come true, by the way. That was a hope that it wasn't realised. They, they were very upset about it. Or, or simply to the Philippians, Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. And so on. You find that all over the New Testament, those kind of hopes. But in the New Testament, there is another kind of hope, a grander, all-encompassing hope, whose influence is everywhere. A hope that is not merely an expectation that is not unreasonable of something which is desirable, but a hope that is so sure it's regarded as certain and what is desired is the greatest thing ever. A hope that reorients the whole life of believers in a way that no common and garden variety or even hold-of-life hope ever can. You find this hope in Scripture. I'm going to focus on the New Testament and upon the epistles only. But it's there elsewhere, as we'll, as we'll probably unpack as the year unfolds. Let, let's just take a few examples of this. Let me start with Paul's letter to the Colossians. He opens his letter, as he always does, except with the Galatians, praising, thanking God for them. He says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that's come to you. Notice here, by the way, we, we do the same, and it's often in the New Testament. The word hope can sometimes be used of the thing hoped for, as well as the actual act, a human act of hoping. Here it's the hope stored up in heaven. I'll explain what that means just a little later. Then a little later, Paul writes about God's purpose for them with a caveat. The caveat is, if you continue in your faith, establish firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. There is a hope held out in the gospel that they are not to move from. 
if they if they get God's purposes for them. Turn to Ephesians. There, Paul, just in passing, can describe himself and his fellow Jews, who were believers before his readers were, that they are Gentiles, as we who were the first to put our hope in Christ. Those who put their hope in Christ is one way of describing what we'd call becoming a Christian believer. Paul then prays for his readers about their hope and prays they'll be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that, and I quote, the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened and you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. A little later on, Paul emphasises it's a shared, not individual hope. He says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Called is a way of describing what we'd say becoming a Christian, so the hope is the very centre of what's gone on in their lives. In his letter to the Romans, Paul describes the situation of the believer as boasting. Boasting in hope. Boasting is a kind of word that means something like out and proud. Really happy with it. I quote, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. And then goes on to add, rather paradoxically, they also boast in their sufferings. Why? Handled the right way, sufferings will lead to hope. And then he adds, and this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which is given us. He can even say later on, the bold statement, in this hope we are saved. That's Romans 8.24. And brings his letter to a climax, as I believe Justin wants to bring this service to a climax, with these words from chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The link of the Holy Spirit and hope is important. I'm going to touch on that in just a moment at the end. This is not just Paul, by the way. Peter, we heard in the, in the, in the second reading. He opens his letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And a few lines later, urges his readers, and I quote, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope, NRSV has set all your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's going to be a revelation of grace. They'd have set all their hope upon it now. In fact, for Peter, at one point, it's the believer's hope that his, his or her defining quality, which may need defending, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Paul's envisioned, Peter's envisioned the situation in which suspicious, perhaps angry, uh, members of their, of their society, uh, this weird cult, demand from them an answer for the, for, the, what? for the hope they have within them, which they are to do nonetheless, no matter how provoked, with gentleness and respect. And there are so many other areas of hope like that. I've just given you a, a simple tasting of the New Testament, the riches of the New Testament.
Which leads, secondly, to this question. What is the hope that so pervades the New Testament and the life of the believer? What is this hope held out in the Gospel? How can we describe it? And the answer is in many ways. In many ways, as you gather, there's no, it, it's a rich variety the way it's talked about. For me, three words come to mind. Christ, life, glory. Christ, life, glory. There are others as well, but these three come to mind to me as I approach this topic. Firstly, the hope is completely bound up with Christ. So much so that St. Paul can even describe Jesus Christ as our hope. He opens his letter to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. You want to know our hope in one thing? It's Christ. He is our hope. In particular, it's involved with the resurrection of Christ. We saw this in the reading from 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. That is, our whole life has been so changed, it's as though we started all over again. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The hope is bound up with the resurrection of Christ because the resurrection of Christ is the beginning of the lordship of Jesus Christ, of his victory, you may say, over a calcinate world. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, Peter announces to the crowd at the day of Pentecost, announcing the resurrection of the crucified Jesus. One distinctive way the New Testament speaks about the lordship of Jesus through the resurrection is to, is to declare that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. That may strike me as an odd phrase at first. It's a, it's a metaphor of sitting in a throne room in which the right hand is next to the power, the, the top, top, top position. And it, it, one of the most quoted, alluded psalms in the New Testament is Psalm 110, verse 1. Verse one the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Exalted to the right hand of God means that Jesus is now shares in the sovereignty of God and has authority over his enemies. This is expressed in a number of places, but Ephesians 1 expresses it most fully. I quote, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's evoked not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Lord over all. How is this connected to hope? It's connected to hope because the Lordship of Christ Jesus has a future to it. It's not a static Lordship. It has a future to it. Not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. He must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. It's an ongoing lordship that will come to a climax. It will eventually encompass all created things, his lordship. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, all will come under his lordship. The climax is often described in the New Testament as the arrival of the Lord Jesus, or the, perhaps, a, perhaps that word, the coming Lord Jesus. 
or in other language, as the appearing or revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul can write in, in Titus about, quote, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the, Lord, the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. That's another way to describe the hope, the appearing. And that's why you find the hope described, as we saw in Peter and elsewhere, as stored up for you in heaven. In Colossians, I should say. Because that's where Jesus Christ is, at the right hand of the Father. That's where your inheritance is, your salvation is, because that's where Christ is. One day, it will cover the entire creation, that hope. The hope is in Christ and his victory, but it's also, in other words, life. It's a hope of life, because that's very much what Christ's lordship means. It's a lordship of life. He is personally risen from the dead himself, as it were, but death, it's death will be the last enemy he will dethrone. Death will succumb, and all that goes with it, to the lordship of Jesus Christ. See, the universe and humans are seen in the scriptures as presently under the power of death, and that means under the power of hopelessness. But in Christ there's now a living hope, and not just for him, but for all who are in him, all who are his. His hope is their hope. They will be raised with Jesus, Paul says. In fact, Paul can, Paul can even describe him as simply your life. Colossians 3, when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Which brings me to that third word, glory. Glory is a difficult word to simply explain. It means magnificence, splendor, honor, radiance, beauty. The future for the Lord Jesus Christ is his glory, which will be, of course, for the glory of God the Father. It's not when he is glorified, God the Father is glorified. When Christ, who is your life, where your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. Another way this can be expressed is using the language of inheritance. Inheritance is where a will or something promises you something and then you finally get it. You inherit from someone. Um, I find what Paul writes in Romans 8 quite astounding and moving. Um, he's writing about being a child of God or a son of God. Now in the New Testament, as often in the, in the ancient Roman world, the language of sonship or being a child, especially adopted child, is not like us, you adopt a child because you want a little kid, right? In the, in the ancient world, the Roman world, you adopted a child so they could be inherit from you. That's why Julius Caesar adopted Octavian as his child, who then became, of course, the Emperor Augustus. And that's the way God seems to work, as it were. Paul talks about being children of God in Romans 8, and then he says this, and I quote, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Let that sink in for a minute, will you? Heirs of God, that is God, inherit what God has for us, and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed, he says, we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. He then goes on, I, can, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That's something of the hope that pervades the New Testament. I could go on, but will not. There is so much riches in this 
What more can I say? We've seen glory, life and Christ, but what more can I say? I do not have time to tell you that this hope is also present in the Old Testament. In, the, in all the stories, but particularly in, in the great prophets. It is present in Jesus' ministry. After all, he came proclaiming what? The coming of the kingdom of God. That is, of God becoming king over his world and rescuing his people. It's there at the centre of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray to the Father. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. What is that if not praying for the coming of the great biblical hope when the Father's name will be sanctified, hallowed, when he becomes fully king and when his will is done in this reality as it is in the heavenly court where God is. And as the year will show us, it's a transforming hope. For one thing, it's the hope that so, that, that so pervades the New Testament and the life of the believer is the key to perseverance in trouble and suffering. It's the key to perseverance in trouble and suffering. That hope. It's the motivation for living lives of Christian virtue. You'll find surprisingly how often the New Testament talks about putting on Christian virtue in order to become the kind of person that in Christ you're going to become in the great Christian hope. You may look back to what's been done for you in the cross if you do that, but, but so often it's looking forward that the Christians are exhorted to Christian virtue and other things as well. There's so much more we'll explore this year as we undertake the, this transforming hope. Now you may remember at the beginning I said that hope is an expectation which is not unreasonable of something, something that's not, that, that is desirable. Well, I think you can see this grand, all-encompassing hope in the New Testament well, how lame is that description now, look? <laughs> how lame. Not, not unreasonable? No, 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 no. This hope is announced to us in the gospel, God's word, and is sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom Paul can describe as, it's Ephesians 1.14, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Just like you, well, you probably don't know about this because you, you, you're all buy now, pay later people, but in the old days, you put money down on something to guarantee it, right? And Paul describes the Holy Spirit as God's deposit in our lives, guaranteeing the future inheritance. The Holy Spirit is all about the hope, all about the hope. So it's a certain hope, not merely not unreasonable. And for something that's desirable, really? That's lame. What the gospel holds out to us is Christ, life and glory is to be desired above all else. It is the pearl of great price, which you would be sensible to sell everything if you had to buy and to, and to lose it. If you lose it, ultimately you've lost everything. Perhaps I could conclude by contrasting this hope with its main alternative in the West today. There is a common alternative that's been current in Western society for the last couple of hundred years. It's particularly held by the intelligentsia in our, in our society and, and, and the like. Probably media people and the, the Twitterati, who knows. But it's, it, it's all around. It's that kind of people, I mean, the ones who know better. They're the ones who hold this view mostly in, our, in the last 200 years, actually. It is the alternative of 
materialistic atheism. The belief, stark alternative, that there is no God and nothing more than material universe, matter in the universe. That's, it's a viable option in that sense. It's a strongly held option. And it's one that has no hope. It is a hopeless view of the world. I don't think many people who hold that view face that reality, but there are some brave souls who do. Bertrand Russell was a leading philosopher of last century. Nearly 100 years ago, he published a book entitled Why I Am Not a Christian. In it, Russell bravely faces up to the stark implications of his atheism. Let me read a quote to you. It's only two sentences. The first sentence has got a whole bunch of clauses in it. It's worth hearing because here's the alternative, the main going alternative in our culture today. and has been for hundreds of years. And I admire Russell's unflinching, unflinching focus in declaring that on his view of the world, existence is without hope. And that's where you've got to start. Let me read the quote. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labour of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. He writes well, doesn't he? Only in the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now, I'm not quoting him because, I'm not saying he's wrong because the picture he paints is so bleak. As it happens, I do believe he is wrong. But I want you to take him seriously as the alternative, the main going alternative, because that allows the brightness and the wonder of the Christian hope to shine so much more vividly. See, one of the troubles of being a Christian too long is you take for granted stuff that is amazing. You take for granted stuff that's amazing. And you therefore do not set all your hope on the grace that's coming, as we're meant to do. However, I will not give Russell the last word. That lies with Leslie Newbigin a significant missionary bishop also of the last century. Once asked whether he was an optimist or a pessimist, Leslie Newbigin replied like this. He said, and I quote, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's the foundation of hope. Let's pray. Let's pray that we will desire that hope. Merciful Lord, you alone can order our unruly wills and affections. Teach us to love what you command and to desire what you promise, that among the changes and chances of this world, 
our hearts may surely be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.